He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi, Stephen Price here. Just a warning, this podcast contains violence and quite a bit of bad language, so take care of yourself while you're listening. He's in two places. I cut him in half. Right. Yeah. Okay, fucking hell, you're a butcher. No, no look, I appreciate your honesty and I, uh, I need... This is what I need. Yeah. Okay, um... No one else has ever heard this. No one. And no one else needs to hear it, mate, okay? No one else needs to hear it. This is David Little confessing to Mr Big. Or at least, it's our actors reading the transcript. Because the court wouldn't let me record this in case they put the undercover officers in danger. Obviously, the circle of secrecy is a bit wider than Mr. Big is letting on. Because what Mr. Big knows, and David Little doesn't, is that lots of people are going to hear this. The police, the prosecutor, the jury in his murder trial. They'll hear how David Little says he killed Brett. I'm Stephen Price, and this is Mr Little Meets Mr Big, the podcast about whether police can use a story to get to the truth about a murder. In the past couple of episodes, we've heard evidence that David Little murdered Brett Hall, and also some evidence suggesting he didn't. Now we'll hear, in David Little's own words, what happened between him and Brett. And we'll have to decide whether he's telling the truth, or just putting on an act for Mr Big to get into the gang. So I thought... I'm going to take you for a little walk and fucking shoot you. No, no human remains located in that area? No human remains located. We, on behalf of Mr Little, now advance again that uh, the case should be stopped. A few episodes ago, we heard some of the first part of the Mr Big interview in that swanky apartment in Wellington. Remember, David Little initially denied killing Brett. It's a drug dealer with um, Brett. Took him away for a drug deal and decided to bloody take the money and the drugs and get rid of the debt that he owed to Brett. He's pointing the finger at Mr Pike. But when Scott, Mr Big, presses him a bit, David Little confesses. All right then, I'll tell you the truth. I did do it. Then Scott asks for details. He says he needs to know everything so he can fix it. And David Little gives him details for half an hour. And then later again to Nick, the guy who brought him into the syndicate. And then again the next day when he drives with Scott and Nick to show them the location of the body parts. David says it began when Brett started smoking pee again. Brett tried to get David into helping him with the drug dealing. Put it this way, it had been going on for a while because he was trying to get me back into doing the drugs with him. Right. Which I won't do. Yeah. But when I found out he'd smoked pee again and started going a bit crazy because mm. he'd he had spent seven years in jail. And one thing I said to him, I want nothing to do with you if you get back on that fucking peak. Mm. And then I suppose six months later, he's fucking back on it, started to turn stupid and telling me what to do in that. Mm. He's the sort of guy you don't want to fuck around with. David tells Scott about that crucial Friday when the Crown says David killed Brett at Pitangi. Says they got into a fist fight. A bit of a punch-up. Oh, I gave him a good hiding. But I knew he'd come back and get me later on. 
when I'm asleep or something. David said Brett was also threatening his family. So I thought, I'm going to take you for a little walk and fucking shoot you. So after the tension had eased a bit, they went hunting. David had the .22 and Brett the .223. They were still close to Kiwi Flat in Brett's campsite when David shot him. This was on the Friday, just like the Crown said. Did he see you coming? Did he? Yeah. Yeah. Any words, said? I told him I was going to blow his head off. Sorry, what? I told him I was going to blow his head off. And how did he respond to that? Fuck all. I think he thought I was joking. David Little was not joking. He shot Brett between the eyes, then tied a bag round his head to suffocate him to make sure he was dead. He tried to drag the body back, but it was too heavy, so he put it on a tarpaulin and cut it in half with a box cutter and a handsaw. Nick asked him, How long does it take to go through it? Oh, fuck all. Oh, yeah? Sharp knife and a handsaw. Fuck. Oh, yeah. Half a minute? Oh, shit. Oh, when you know where you're cutting. Oh, yeah. It's just like cutting a sheep. He says there wasn't much blood. He triple-wrapped the body parts in plastic bags, then burned the evidence on the campfire, like the tarpaulin, the saws, and some other things of Brett's. That fucking couple of little things I had a bit of blood on. Yeah? Your clothes or his? Nah, his shit. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. What, what was that? Um, what was fuck? Oh, just some bit of paper of something out of his pocket. Right. Yeah, they fell out when I fucking started moving him. He says he kept that fire burning for days. And I went back and loaded it up to make sure, so burned for three days non-stop. Next, he moved Brett's quad bike up the hill. Just to make it look like he'd gone hunting. Then he put Brett's body parts in his SUV and covered them with firewood. He says the whole thing took about half an hour and he got out of there just after noon on Friday. On Sunday, he got up early and went out in his SUV. He left his cell phone at home so he couldn't be traced and avoided all the CCTV cameras in the area. Then he buried the body parts. Where's that far under the ground? It's not funny. Where? Where, where the fuck is he? In two different beaches. OK. Right on the tide line. Right. Which beaches are we talking? Around uh, Hematangi, one of them. Yeah. And the other one out to Rakina. OK. To be honest with you, I'll never be able to fucking find him again. He dug holes. Big ones, five or six feet deep on the tide line. By the time I'd finished, I had a hole fucking where you could put ten people in. He tossed in Brett's remains, then poured on some petrol and lit a fire. He was in bags, but I doused them with petrol to burn all the evidence beforehand. Okay. And then, once it was cooled down a bit, covered it up. He covered the burnt remains with huge pieces of driftwood so no one could dig them up. So what? Did you stay all night with him? Nah, just a couple of hours. Then he headed back out to Pitangi. Uh, I made out I had to go up there and do a bit on the house. Oh, yeah? Yeah, just as an alibi to fucking... Yeah? And I did do a bit on it. Right. Just to keep... make sure the fire was still going. After that, he fished out the burnt remains of the saw and the knife and threw them off the bridge into the Turakina River. But what happened to the guns? Scott asks him about it. Where are the shooters now? They're with him. He's saying he buried them with Brett's remains. 
But then, ten minutes later, he's saying something different. And you said, the guns are with him. The guns are where I can't find them. Well, you can't. Yeah. Oh, this is where we went the other day. David's talking about the time he took Nick to find a .22 and a .223 that were hidden in cemeteries. He said they belonged to his mate. We heard about that earlier. Remember, they didn't find guns, but they found ammunition and other paraphernalia for .22 and .223 rifles. Anyway, he's now telling Scott that he stashed the guns at the cemeteries but can't find them anymore. But he doesn't think they'd implicate him. Oh, I cleaned the barrel. Yeah? So there'll be no evidence on that. Scott asks him if the killing's been weighing on his mind. David says it has, but not because he feels guilty. I don't really give a fuck about what I've done, to be honest. Yeah? It's only in the back of my head because of the way the cops fucking told everyone I'd done it. Yeah. And never actually charged me. Yeah. I don't think they've got any right to do that. Is this a murderer getting outraged about the police correctly calling him a murderer? That takes some gall. But is it possible that, instead, it's the lingering resentment of an innocent man falsely accused? At the end of the interview, Scott tells David he's passed the test. He's in the gang. Then David goes back to Nick and confesses to him, too. Police tried to do me for murder about three years ago. Hey? For real? Yeah. Fucking hell. But I told Scott the truth. I did do it. You're shitting me. I'm not. Fucking hell. Shot him in the head. Really? Oh, well. I'm not normally like that, though. The next day, Scott and Nick drive around with David to get him to show them where he put Brett's remains in the early hours of that Sunday morning he was telling Scott about. That's the Sunday he told police he got up to go fishing and then went to Pitanga had a couple with Brett. But in this version, Brett's body is bagged in the back of his SUV under some firewood, where it's been all weekend. At several points, David tells Scott and Nick the remains will never be found, and he himself might find it hard to locate them. When they get to Himatangi Beach, David's not entirely sure where he dug, though he remembers he could see a light in the distance that he thought was a boat club. He points out a spot and says, I'd say it'd be no more than a kilometre from this. Then they keep driving, and he shows them where he buried the bottom half of Brett's body. David points out where he turned off State Highway 3 on his way up from Bulls, into Turakina Beach Road, just north of Turakina. Then he tells them he drove out to the beach, then drove all the way down the beach, before finally coming up again through Bulls. There's a map on our website at rnz.co.nz if you want to follow along. So David tells them he drove in on Turakina Beach Road and then headed south along the beach a long way down. But then he starts changing his story a bit. Yesterday he said he buried the legs on Turakina Beach, Now it's in a little forest clearing away from the beach outside the tiny township of Scotts Ferry. Still, he's much more confident now of this location. He takes them there. It would be, I'll tell you right now, we'd be fucking close just in this area here. Just sort of a 10 metre wide radius. During the drive, Nick mentions that David had told him a bit about Brett before. What did you say? He, He disappeared a few years ago and Black Power got him or something, you reckon? Yeah. Well, that's what the story is. That's what the story is. That word again. David's story to police about a drug killing. Which is different to David's story to Scott, 
about his murder of Brett, which is unfolding inside Mr Big's story to David about a criminal syndicate. A syndicate that prizes honesty above all else. So much bullshit. Where did the stories end and the truth begin? At the end of the Mr Big interview, Scott wonders... And so what you've said to the police is all... It's obviously bullshit. Yeah, some of it. A lot of it's actually the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Just had a couple of bits away from them and that was it. So I know how to fucking... Yeah? Cover it. But if I'd started lying, I would have fucking... Would have fallen into a big hole. Yeah, yeah, exactly, mate. The more you lie, the more you've got to lie, eh? Hmm. So I pretty much told the truth other than fucking what actually happened to him. You know, when I heard this confession in court, I thought it had a ring of truth. David Little's not hesitating with any of this. He seems confident. His answers are detailed. I guess I need to remind myself what the experts told us. False confessions can be detailed and convincing. But you know, that bit about the piece of paper falling from Brett's pocket when David tried to move him? Who makes that up? What's more, lots of what he says fits with what we know. Brett taking pee, the staged quad bike up the hill, David's unconvincing responses to police questions about his strange drive around on Sunday, the .22 and .223 that went missing, the gun paraphernalia he showed to Nick at the cemeteries. If that stuff was Brett's, it suggests David took the guns too and... Well, doesn't mean he shot Brett, but leads that way. It all fits with the Crown case that David killed Brett on Friday and buried him early Sunday. The Crown's case is that we only need to listen to David's own story to know the truth. Does this get rid of our reasonable doubt? But the defence says, let's look at that confession more closely. Surely it's only credible if it's true. If it doesn't check out, it's got to be a false confession. And we know David Little had every reason to confess, even if he didn't kill Brett. That makes sense. Though when you think about it, it's a bit weird. Usually, if the defendant's lying, that's very bad for the defence. It's one of the quirks of the Mr Big Sting that a defendant, to prove their innocence, has to convince the jury that they're a liar. I suppose the first thing to point out is that David's confession itself kept changing. First... The legs were buried at Tutatina Beach. Then they were in a forest. First, the guns were buried with the body. Then they were hidden separately. David Little told each variation of his story with the same convincing confidence. But what about the rest of it? Does it square with what we know about what really happened? If so, that might be a good reason to find David Little's confession plausible. Let's go back to the trial in Wellington in 2019. David's lawyers are going to put that story to the test in front of prosecution and defence witnesses. Let's start with Brett's remains. The jury's told that a police team searched a strip of Hematangi Beach eight metres wide and one kilometre long over four days using a hole borer, ground-penetrating radar that could search down two metres, GPS, a quad bike and a small digger. And as a result of that search, were any human remains located? No, not within that search area, no. What's more, they couldn't dig down for five or six feet, as David Little claimed. They hit the water table at about four feet. When Detective Sergeant Gleeson tried to dig a hole as big as David described, he couldn't. And what you didn't tell us 
right, mm -hmm. is that um, you couldn't dig any further because the sides of the hole continuously fell in, preventing you from digging deeper. That's correct, yeah. But a fire expert doubted David's story about the beach fire. It would be extremely difficult to ignite and then maintain the fire in the circumstances described. What about the other site, the patch of forest near Scotts Ferry where David said he buried Brett's legs? Another team with a digger and a body-sniffing dog unit dug it up. No, no human remains located in that area? No human remains located. Then there's the burnt remains of the handsaw and knife that David said he threw off the bridge over the Turukina River. Four members of the Police National Dive Squad searched the river from the bridge 100 metres downstream, using a grid, sifting silt on the riverbed and using metal detectors. Did you locate the items that you're looking for? No, we did not. Though they did find things like nails, screws and bottle tops, some very rusty, like they'd been there for some time. But there's doubt about whether David even burned that handsaw. Remember he told Scott he stoked the campfire for three days? That must have been from Friday to Sunday. But you might remember, Brett's son Damien visited on Saturday and felt the fire. So I put my hand over it. Um, and it was really cold, stone cold, so that told me that Dad, well, he hadn't had a fire that morning. He probably didn't cook dinner there the night before. Uh, the reason for that, actually, is because of the Manuka firewood that he burnt. It, it burns for a long, long time. It stays hot for a long time. Then there's David's Sunday morning drive around, zipping back and forth past those CCTV cameras and trying to access the beach near Turukina. Here's David's lawyer, Christopher Stevenson, cross-examining Detective Sergeant Gleeson again. If you've gone in there and driven all the way down the beach, you wouldn't be popping up on CCTV heading south through Turakina, would you? If you'd gone down Turakina Road, no. No. Right. And of course, that's what we know happened. What happened is, David drove south along State Highway 3, not along the beach. If David did turn off State Highway 3, just past Turakina, and drive to the beach, and then head south down the beach, like he told Scott, then what's he doing popping up on the CCTV camera on State Highway 3 at Turakina, heading south shortly afterward? He's either heading south on the beach or he's on the highway. It can't be both. If he's going down the beach, he's not on that CCTV camera. Things get worse from there. Let's say he buries the legs in the forest near Scott's Ferry, as he said to Mr Big. Then he's supposed to head to Himatangi Beach to bury the torso. David said he buried the torso after the legs. Now, Himatangi Beach is just south of that area, but there's one problem. We can see the Rangitiki River there, can't we? Correct. And uh, that's at just under Scott's Ferry, the Rangitiki River. Correct? Yes. Yep. And you know that you absolutely cannot drive that way, can you? You nope. wouldn't even get a boat across there unless you're a good seaman, right? Well, I would not put a vehicle across there. It is impossible, isn't it? Correct, from what I saw. So the suggestion going in at Turakina down the beach and going to Himatangi second, right, that, that's contradicted by what you know, isn't it? That couldn't happen. The Rangitike River was between the two burial sites. Now David could drive back through Bulls across the bridge and back to the coast, but it would take far too long. Remember, the window we're looking at is that unexplained two-hour gap between when David's car is caught on CCTV cameras at 5.30am and 7.30am. Yeah, and it certainly couldn't happen having regard to, to the timing, right? You, you've checked this, haven't you? Along the beach. Going to Hamitangi at all within the two-hour period. 
That's highly unlikely. Well, it's not just highly unlikely. We're, yeah. we're, we're, we're trying to pick apart something somebody said, right, which is being relied upon to convict him of murder, mm -hmm. right? And we need to know if it's true or not, or if it's got the hallmarks of nonsense. You know that he couldn't have gone to Hamitangi in the period because you checked it, and even just to drive to Hamitangi and back is an hour and ten minutes. You checked that. That's right. That's probably a bit more than that. Yeah. And of course, in his story, he's uh, digging a hole ten feet wide, uh, chest height, um, and throwing wood in it and burning a fire for a couple of hours. That's what he said. Correct. That, that's just obviously rubbish, isn't it? To go to Hamitangi. To do all of that in the time period? Oh, no, you couldn't do that. Yeah. There's more. David Little didn't leave his cell phone at home, as he told Scott. He plainly didn't dodge the CCTV cameras, as he claimed. He didn't have any obvious bruises or cuts from the punch-up he said he had with Brett. And there was an army exercise in Santoff Forest the night David was supposed to be burying Brett's remains, but no-one saw a thing. And there's one other thing, but a warning, this next bit gets a bit gory. How was a man with an injured shoulder supposed to carry Brett's 90-kilogram body to his ute? Well, maybe he solved that by chopping Brett's body in half with a handsaw and box cutter. That's what he told Scott anyway. He said he did it in about 30 seconds. Could he really have done that? How easy would it have been? Could he possibly have been right that it didn't leave much blood? The prosecution called forensic pathologist Dr Martin Sage and asked him what he thought. Is it possible, in your opinion, to do what Mr Little told the undercover officers he did? That is to divide the body and separately bag both halves without spilling uncontained blood or other trace evidence? Yes, I think it is. The defence called Dr David Garavan, another forensic pathologist. Does he think it was possible? No, I don't. Dr Garavan pointed to lots of problems. The knife would get awfully slippery with blood, you couldn't see what you were doing, it would be hard to hold and turn the body, and it would be tricky to get the right angle to cut through the spine. It's simply not possible with a two-centimetre knife to cut through loops of bowel to keep moving around like a, uh, like a spaghetti on a plate that's moist. It's, it's, uh, I can't foresee how I would overcome that without making a complete mess of what I'm doing. What sort of uh, mess or otherwise are we talking about, Dr Garavan? It is inc inconceivable to me, and I, you know, with all my heart, I'm telling you, it's inconceivable to me that as you're trying to achieve this, that the loops of bowels that you've poked, prodded, cut, spilling their contents with blood, and you're manoeuvring a body, it's inconceivable to me that, that you're not going to cause an unholy mess. It's inconceivable. Both experts said there'd be two to four litres of blood, but Dr Sage can imagine that being caught on the tarpaulin if it was done carefully. He disagreed with Dr Garavan that it would necessarily be messy. I'm famously known as the tidy pathologist, so perhaps I have a different <laughs> perspective than he has. But um, I, I disagree that if, if someone had uh, prior knowledge of similar procedures, uh, that it would need to either be difficult or particularly messy. Dr Garavan says he's pretty tidy too. But he just doesn't think this could happen. I, I personally can't see it being done. I, I just can't. But if, 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 if you give me enough time and maybe some help, I, I suppose I could do something. Um, and at which point I would need 
look, you know, 20, 30 minutes. And I, I think I'm really being unkind to myself there. I, or, uh, I'm or sorry, I've been overly kind to myself. I think I probably would need a lot longer. Dr Sage isn't convinced. <clears throat> I think he's over-dramatised it. In fact, I, I could envisage if uh, I was ever in the position of wanting to do such a thing that it would not be as difficult as he is portraying. Right. In the end, Dr Garvin doesn't buy David Little's story. I think the nicest way to put it is that it's the figment of an uneducated and unsophisticated mind, nothing more. But Dr Sage says this is shortchanging the skills of others with talents and chopping carcasses. If you still go to a place that's got a proper butcher, not a supermarket, you can watch the butcher doing stuff with knives and things uh, that, if you're not familiar with using knives, will leave you a little bit gasping. So in our community, there are a whole lot of people who have expertise at taking bodies apart, which is in, in, in that part of what they do is at least the same as mine. I mean, there's nothing special about being a doctor in that regard. David Little, remember, worked in a freezing works when he was younger. And he's a hunter. He told Nick cutting up the body was just like cutting up a sheep. Dr Garavan didn't agree with that, but a Crown witness who'd been both a freezing worker and a mortician did. He said he reckoned he could cut up a human body in about four minutes in a situation like this, though he'd never actually done it. Where does this leave us? Well, for me... A bit disconcerted. These are experts. They're both neutral. They're both confident. They can't both be right. This is the one issue in this case you'd think that medical science could solve for us. I don't know who's right. For me, I kind of prefer Dr Garavan's evidence. But it might just be because he's a better storyteller. Anyway, it does seem at least to put another crack in the credibility of the story David Little told Scott. And the credibility of that story is surely lying in ruins right now. Remember, the Mr Big Sting was supposed to encourage David Little to be honest. But there's just so much bullshit here. As the defence put it, David's story was literally full of holes. The defence has an explanation for it. David Little wanted to get the nod to join the gang. And when Mr Big wasn't accepting his answer about the drug killing, he switched to a different story. He didn't even need to make it up because the police had already given it to him, on a plate. Let's go back for some more pieces of that four-hour interview between Detective Humphrey and David Little that the police videoed a few months after Brett disappeared. It's at the end where Detective Humphrey summarises the police theory. I think an incident happened between you, somewhere out the back. I think you returned to the farm and staged the quad bike to make it look like Brett had gone hunting. Um, you took the firearms with you when you left the property on Friday afternoon? No, I didn't. I think that on Sunday you went back there to check that you hadn't seen anything lying around, left anything lying around. No. Um, and I think that you burned something in the fire on Friday or on Sunday and you spread the ashes on the corrugated iron on Sunday. For the defence, the story David told Mr Big was born in that police interview. They say he just picked it up and ran with it when Scott wouldn't believe the truth. The slivers of David Little's confession to Mr Big that are accurate are things David was told in that interview or that he already knew. There's nothing he said to Scott that we know for sure is true and that only the killer would have known. What can the prosecution say about all this? What's their story about why David's confession doesn't check out? 
They say some of it did check out, like the quad bike and the missing guns. As for the rest, it's a mix of things. Some exaggeration, some bravado, lots of bad memory for detail. He was trying to impress Scott and Nick, but maybe he still didn't quite trust them. He had a lot to lose. He didn't want anyone knowing where he'd really buried the body. And if he did bury the body somewhere else in Sentoft Forest, that would explain why he was driving back towards Bulls after that missing two hours on the Sunday morning. There must be a grain of truth in at least some of that. But does it really explain all the problems with the confession? Is it enough to dispel that reasonable doubt that we had at the beginning? Surely not. I mean, it's possible that David Little was telling the truth about killing Brett, but lying about or misremembering almost everything else. That just doesn't seem likely. I feel like there's even more doubt about his guilt after his confession to Mr Big. Except, you're used to this now, aren't you? Our story takes another twist. Let's go back to the day David Little's arrested, 2014, in the Yellow House Cafe in New Plymouth. The undercover team have handed over to the Whanganui investigation team, and Detective Sergeant Gleason takes David to the police station to formally charge him with murder. Listen to what he says happened then. And when we were in the charging room, I explained to him that he'd been subject to an undercover operation, and that the day before, all his conversations had been recorded. He told me, if you heard what I said to those guys, you'll know it was self-defence. Wait, self-defence? What? Isn't that basically another confession? He's not saying he didn't kill Brett. I suppose he might be referring to what he told Scott about getting in first before Brett killed him while he was asleep. No doubt David's head is spinning right at that point. Maybe it's hard for him to tell what's real and what's not. Maybe he still has a foot in both stories. It's hard to know how you'd react if you were told the last three months of your life you'd been starring in the Truman Show. Maybe even if you were innocent, you might think it looked so bad that you'd start to weave a new story around the old one. Or maybe it's an attempt to laugh in the face of the police. Ha! You did your little sting, but I'm going to get off anyway. Or maybe, I don't know, Detective Sergeant Gleason got it wrong. We've never heard David's side of this. But if he did say that, one thing's for sure. It's not a denial. And that's not all. The next day, David is taken to Whanganui Prison. A couple of corrections officers take him through the induction process. He's searched, photographed. They talk to him about things like diet, next of kin, assess his frame of mind. Then, on the spur of the moment, one of them asks David, point blank. I mean, I, I just said to him, do you think they've got the right, the right man? What was his reply? He just tend to nodded his head and said, yeah. Uh, I was going to hand myself in anyway. It's been on, been going on for a few years and just wanted to off his chest. The other corrections officer heard the conversation too. He said something along the lines, have they got the right person? And what did David Little say? He said yes, that they had. Um... It had been weighing heavily along the lines of it had been weighing heavily on his conscience, and um, he was going to confess or hand himself in something along those lines. Wow, is that what a confession really sounds like? 
is it possible that those corrections officers got the wrong end of the stick? One thing to remember is that David Little never gave evidence in the trial, so we don't know what his version of that conversation was. And Christopher Stevenson reminded the first corrections officer that he'd earlier described that conversation with David a bit differently. And you said, right, that his response to you was that his, he's been, oh, words to the extent of he's been waiting, waiting for this day. Right? That's what you said just earlier. Yes. Yeah. Yes. All right. That's quite a bit different. In fact, that's not a confession at all. If that's all David Little said, he'd been waiting for this day to come, then it's neither here nor there. David had felt hounded by the police, who told him they thought he was guilty and he could go to jail for 18 years. But both officers gave evidence that David said more than that, and actually admitted guilt, and their evidence was quite similar. Piecing the evidence together, it's pretty clear the corrections officer didn't mean to say that all David told him was that he'd been waiting for this day to come. But maddeningly, that was never quite clarified in court. There are a couple more odd scenes. Detective Sergeant Gleeson visits David Little in prison some days after David talked to those corrections officers. During one visit, he says David handed him a piece of paper. It was a tax invoice dated for the 2nd of the 7th, 2014. It had a number on it, 907535, with a total amount of $3,200. It was payment for the work he'd done for Nick, the undercover officer. Okay. I think we put that down to prison humour. But as a lawyer, I wonder whether he was undervaluing his claim. He was, after all, promised a car, a job, and a free trip to Australia. But what happened during Detective Sergeant Gleeson's next visit was not so whimsical. So I said, um, I want to ask you now, do you want to show some remorse and compassion towards Brett's family? and give them Brett's body back so they can move on with their grieving. His reply was, no, not at the moment, no. Not at the moment? He wanted to talk to his lawyer first. The jury heard that much. But here's how the conversation went on that the jury didn't get to hear. Detective Sergeant Gleeson says Mr Little told him that everything he said to Nick and Scott on the drive around was a lie. He didn't trust them, and the police wouldn't find the knife in the river. He could take them to the body, but he wanted to speak to his lawyer first. A few days later, Detective Sergeant Gleeson says Mr Little told him the body was in an estuary area with four-wheel drive access at low tide. Police reckoned he was describing a place called Hell's Hole, which is north of Hamatangi Beach. They searched it. They didn't find anything. You might be wondering why the jury didn't get to hear about that. It's because Detective Sergeant Gleeson didn't give David Little a caution before that conversation. That's where the police warn you about your right to silence. Detective Sergeant Gleeson had cautioned David twice earlier on, but not during this visit. Without that caution, David shouldn't have been asked those questions. That's because you should have a chance to weigh up the consequences before making a statement to the police. The Court of Appeal called it a serious mistake. The Court of Appeal said the right to silence and the right to counsel are amongst the most important rights accorded to citizens, and the integrity of our system of justice is paramount. I know, right? This feels a bit surreal. Where was the right to silence? The right to weigh up whether you want to talk to the police or not? During the Mr Big sting. There's something very strange about the law getting all hit up about David Little not being given a warning in prison, where he knew full well that what he said could be used against him, and where he was speaking voluntarily. 
compared to the massive orchestrated Mr. Big stage play whose very purpose was to deny David Little that knowledge, that voluntariness and that warning. Why the difference? We'll talk a bit more about it in the next episode. But the main difference is that the right to silence only kicks in under the Bill of Rights when you're in police custody. He wasn't in police custody during the sting, so there was no right to silence and no right to a warning. Maybe the idea that the law is always logical and consistent is another story we like to tell ourselves. Anyway, that's at least three reports of statements by David Little after his arrest that look like he admitted he killed Brett Hall. And all of them happened after he'd been told about the sting, so it's hard to argue that all the incentives in the Mr Big sting were pushing him to confess. It's one thing to confess a crime to a criminal boss who'll reward you with money and a job, but it's quite another to fess up to police and prison officers who you have to know will reward you with a life sentence. But if those admissions look more plausible... What are we to make of the Mr Big confession now? Is it more credible? The defence have no doubt. The Mr Big sting confession was unreliable, shouldn't have gone to the jury. And the apparent admissions afterwards don't affect that, and in fact should be thrown out too. So at the end of the Crown's case, the defence asks the court to rule that all this evidence, the Mr Big sting and David's statements afterwards, are inadmissible. If Your Honour pleases, as was outlined on Friday, uh, we on behalf of Mr Little... Um, now advance again, uh, effectively a submission that uh, the case should be stopped. That would almost certainly bring down the trial too. You couldn't just tell the jury to put the Mr Big confession out of their minds. It would be incomprehensible um, in my submission uh, that the jury would nonetheless be entitled to proceed and expect, or be expected to put aside, um, the impact of hearing all of the scenarios and hearing the and, and seeing the statements adduced in the Scott interview. In the next episode, we'll find out whether the defence succeeds. Can the trial go ahead? And what does the law make of Mr Big Stings? Little Meets Mr Big is an RNZ production, written and presented by me, Stephen Price, with support from Victoria University of Wellington and the Michael and Suzanne Boren Foundation. Justin Gregory and Katie Gossett are the executive producers. Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts and series for RNZ. Thanks to sound engineers Blair Stagpool, Phil Benj, Mark Chesterman, Rangi Powick and William Saunders. Jeremy Ansel and Steve Burridge are the Auckland and Wellington operations team leaders. The actors were Jack Sergeant Shadbolt and Alex Grigg. Duncan Smith was the director. Music composed and performed by Ebony Lamb and Graham Antler. Images by Ebony Lamb. Artwork and design by Jared Bishop and RNZ. You can listen and follow all RNZ podcasts at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Listener.